Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Steward is transforming agriculture by equipping regenerative farms and food systems with the capital they need to grow. As a mission-driven financial partner, Steward works closely with agriculture businesses to scale their operations, improve the health of their lands and waters, and boister farm-to-regional food systems. To date, Steward has provided over $15 million in business loans to fund 75 unique projects backed by more than 1,500 participating lenders. Steward is proud to be a certified B Corp., Seek financing or support a loan campaign at GoSteward.com. This podcast is brought to you by GrownBuy. Join farmers from across the U.S. who are selling direct on the first cooperatively owned sales app, GrownBuy. You can easily manage CSAs of any scale, organize your spring plant sales, move that freezer meat, or even sell wholesale on GrownBuy. Farm shops are free to build with lots of inventory options. You can accept credit cards and offline payments, and their pick lists and pack sheets do the job. Customers will get automated notifications on orders, refunds, and pickups. There is no startup fees, no monthly or yearly subscriptions, no additional charge for tech support. The only cost is a small co-op service charge for online processing. However, as a listener of the Thriving Farmer podcast, you get 50% off your first three months of co-op service charges on GrownBuy. Email their very friendly farmer support team at grow at farmgenerations.coop to get this offer. Check it out at grownby.com or download the app on the Google Play or Apple App Stores. Grown by the farmer owned marketplace. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is Eric Sinarud, who is a hop evangelist. Eric first fell in love with hops as a co-founder and farmer CEO of Mighty Axe Hops, a fully integrated hop farm and marketing company, which grew and sold 80 acres of hops in Minnesota. He then went on to be the hop brand manager for Brewers Supply Group. He is now a freelance hop consultant for brewers, farmers, and marketers across the United States. Welcome, Eric. Hey, Michael. Share with us a little bit about, you know, what got you to become a hop evangelist? (laughs) Uh, I am in love with the plant. I love hops. I love the world that they bring us. You know, my amazement with them today, um, nearly more than a decade since discovering them kind of remains the same. It's this single hop, the single plant can and does produce flowers with a range of aroma and flavor expressions that is is fascinating. I've always been fascinated by scent and, mm-hmm. and aroma, particularly of, of natural sources, you know, like a plum tree or, or an apple blossom. Um, you know, the the aroma that they that they have and the way that that connects to our experience and our memory and hops do that for me every time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, did you get interested as you started drinking beer or what was what was kind of like the first introduction to them? Yeah, the first introduction to hops was, yeah, liking uh, craft beer, learning about craft beer, liking Ranger IPA from New Belgium. Mm-hmm. For all those uh, old school craft beer drinkers out there, that was my first real IPA experience. Uh, uh-huh. And um, that's what that's what sucked me in. It was like, well, I, I, I love the way these things taste. Could I grow them in Minnesota? Yeah. You know? yeah. 
So why don't you give folks a little bit of an overview of the plant and then kind of like the growth cycle for that? Because it's a little bit different than a lot of crops most people are considering. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of different things about hops. Yeah. <laughs> so from a very, you know, 10,000 foot level, they're a perennial crop. For yeah. starters. They're perennial. Uh, for second, they grow in a trellis, but like a very tall trellis. If you imagine wine grapes, I think people are very familiar with that, but much taller, uh, usually 18 feet here in the States. Um, and being a perennial crop, they have a, uh, uh, you know, an, a cycle of activity and, and from a farmer's perspective, labor needs that are really, you know, unique, you know, in a, in a annual crop, there's generally a, a consistent work of labor, planting, harvest, labor, planting, harvest, yeah. um, with the perennial crop like hops in the spring, they grow. And then there's a lot of labor required to train them to a string. They must be trained to grow up. And then there's kind of this growing period, lower labor, and then there's harvest, which is incredibly intense. Even if uh, you mechanize it to some extent, harvest for hops is a roughly 30 day window. Uh, yeah. Depending on your volume of hops, you have to harvest a lot of long hours and days, both picking, drying, and then uh, pelleting or otherwise processing and packaging your hops. Yeah. So then there's also machines that can help you with parts of that too, especially like picking the, the flowers. Yep. Uh, hop picking machines come in all sizes and sorts for all different sizes of, of farms. And really, uh, after picking, you need to dry them. And after drying, you need to package them. And after you package them, you might need to pellet them. And so there's a lot of processing that goes into making a hop that you might grow ready for a brewer. Yes. Because most brewers are using a, they want a dried pellet or do some use fresh? Yeah, so um, uh, dried pellet or dried hops are the other primarily primary way that brewers use hops. It's ninety nine percent of of beer is using that. Um, but some brewers and some beers on a seasonal basis use wet hops or fresh hops, like you mentioned. Yep. Um, and those are hops that have been harvested but not dried. Those okay. hops need to be used almost immediately, and they're of course that makes them a very seasonal product. Um, hops will wilt if left or rot, really, uh, if left out and not in a drying environment, kind of like if you had a, I, mean, I always tell people, imagine, imagine picking a, uh, head of lettuce and then leaving it in the sun in the field and coming yes. back an hour later. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be wilted right down. Gotcha. Um, now hops from what I understand also have a, some, um, medicinal compounds. Well, I mean, they have the flavonoid, is it xanther humal? Yeah. Yep. That's in there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of cool yeah. uh, chemicals and hops and different hops of different ratios of these. Um, people use hops. Um, okay. Obviously for beer, right. That's where yep. all the hops go functionally, but yep. people also use hops with, for herbal remedies, you know, there's, there's uh, you can use them to help, help fall asleep. Um, mm. You can use them in other teas and tinctures for various uses. They, they have a strong, um, preservative effects they're you know they yep. are the preservative in beer and so uh certain slices of hop extract can also be used to preserve you know natural body care products you know i think the deodorant that i use has hops on the label and that's what's going that's what it's doing in there i wish it smelled like hops <laughs> it smells yeah. good but yeah yeah very cool so then lots of things and so there are some people that are then putting it into things besides beer is what you're saying yes but from like a market standpoint it's less than one yes. less than half of 1%, you know, it's, it's yeah. all hops that are grown go to beer. 
Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So let's talk a little bit about like your farm, like your farm story, like, cause I know you're actively not doing that now. Um, so let's yeah. talk a little bit about like, you know, starting that farm. Cause you guys were 80 acres of hops, is a tremendous amount of hops. It is a tremendous amount of hops, at least for uh, the Midwest here in Minnesota. Um, yeah. you know, the journey was a long one and, uh, you know, the story of, of getting into farming is different for everybody. Um, you know, this is, this was the kind of second crop that I got in, interested in. And, and the only reason I was able to get into it and start with, you know, we started with 25 plants and at 80 acres, it was 80,000 plants. Um, you know, it was just cause it was, uh, there was my grandparents still happened to live on a part of the family farm that hadn't been, you know, sold or turned into a highway. Um, and so yeah. there was space available. Um, you know, I'll never, uh, I'll never forget their support, uh, letting me go out there and just screw around. No yeah. idea what I was doing. Um, and that was a lot of years of not really knowing what we were doing and, and learning by doing, um, learning as we go, uh, until, yeah, we, we expanded significantly at our own separate farm. Yeah. So then, and when you started the, were you messing around with a lot of different varieties? What was kind of like the R and D process to go from 25 plants to the 80,000 or 80, uh, sorry, 80, <laughs> 80 acres. And I don't know how many thousand yeah. plants that was. Yeah. 80,000 plants. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, uh, looking back, I wish that we had R and D for another, you know, 18 years or whatever to really okay. <laughs> try to learn something, but you know, that's not how reality goes. Um, we started with just Cascade, the most common hop plant. And if people out there are thinking about growing a hop, um, that's one of the first ones I'd recommend. It, it's pretty resilient. It's pretty uh, flexible. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's it's common. It's known uh, to brewers and, and people who brew beer. Um, and it just behaves very, really quite well in most climates. Um, so we, we, we started with just a bunch of Cascade, um, then added a couple more. And then we went to 80. We were at about uh, 10 or 12 varieties, but I'm not going to yep. like name them all for you. Some of them were real stinkers. Some of them were, were all-stars. Um, and that's another thing to consider if you're thinking about growing hops out there is, um, you know, as a perennial plant, choosing a variety and planting it, it takes them a few years to get to full maturity. So you're investing mm -hmm. a lot. It's not only a lot of cost in the plants themselves, which can be, you know, $3 a plant. Um, yeah. Uh, you're investing a lot of labor into planting them, and then you're investing a lot of time and kind of waiting and nurturing them until they get to a kind of a commercial viable yield for you that um, picking the right varieties is, is immensely important. Yeah. Now with hops too, is uh, because you have to trellis them and all that per plant, what's the spacing generally that's used? So we did three to three and a half feet per plant okay. in the row. Yep. Different people will do different things. The closer they go together, the more disease pressure you're going to invite. The main gotcha. challenges for hops um, are downy and powdery mildew from okay. a fungal perspective. And so moisture uh, is your enemy on the plant. And so good airflow, good sunlight penetration is important for some natural deterrence to those diseases. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, so we've got that. Um, and then... Um, the trellising for like a lot of people using telephone poles or just, you know, rot resistant cedar and locusts. Yeah, it depends on scale. You know, there's, there's, um, you know, commercial scale, people are, are using egg treated pine. Yeah. Uh, so not telephone poles, you know, there's all sorts of stuff on telephone poles that, you know, can poison your soil or hurt the plants. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, at a smaller scale, you know, when we first started, we found a, you know, a, a logger who had a bunch of 
the correct length tamarack and we use okay. tamarack and those are still yeah. standing uh, in the ground now 12 years later so yeah so all right so um the rot resistant and then what can an average hot plant produce for yield uh totally depends on the the variety and the season and the maturity um anywhere from, and this is going to be in dry because i don't no one really measures in wet yield um okay that and your climate and where you are i mean it could be half a pound it could be two pounds could be three pounds per string okay by per plant sorry well yeah so in a lot of systems hops are strung with two strings per plant okay yeah uh, instead of one and so per string is anyway Gotcha. Gotcha. That's mm-hmm. way if you do two strings, you get them to spread out a little bit more instead of up just one string. You get that string. V pattern that if, if y'all go and look up, you know, hot fields on the internet, you'll see like this V-ing mm-hmm. uh, shape and that that is just the plant can produce more than enough material to get yield off of two strings uh, yeah. versus just one. There are different ways that people do it. Some have four strings per hill and different kind of ways to lay out your yard. But ultimately, mm-hmm. your, your, your um, limiting factor is is generally not you know how many strings you put your plant on it's you know it's nutrient availability it's water it's mm-hmm. you know genetic yeah so what kind of soils do hops like it'd be lighter is better okay um lighter is better when we first grew hops there was on a basically straight sand which had its own challenges but we also mm-hmm. you know we have very little water related disease pressure um they want good soil it needs to be well training it should not be wet or heavy um it, the the richer the better they are uh-huh. they are hungry plants they need a lot to achieve commercial yields um, okay yeah, of course that depends on your goals with the plant but um they are uh very demanding plants to successfully cultivate gotcha all right so lots of fertility um yep. and then when you what time of year is the harvest is that like september or where were you guys were i mean you're very far north so i mean it might have been maybe even earlier yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we're right in the band. It's about the 47th parallel that hops are, or most hops are kind of genetically suited for. Uh-huh. Um, they are, they are, uh, their important maturity dates are based on sunlight. And okay. so the timing of sunlight and then a little bit of heat is what's going to define the length of your season. So for us in Minnesota, much like most of the Northern Hemisphere, our harvest begins in mid to late August and wraps up by the end of September. Uh, yes. Like maturity of the hops, I should say. You know. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's that's the hop harvest season. But if you're in different spaces, the further you go south, you know that can get a little earlier because the heat and the sunlight intensity will push the hop to be moving to maturity. The this the to to to, to enter the process of creating flowers yeah. sooner. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And so what you mentioned fertility requirements, what were you using to put down? Was that just like composted chicken manure or lots of compost? Yeah, we were, we were not organic. uh, Okay. So we were using traditional sources of nitrogen. Um, There's uh, hops are an example of a crop that for commercial production, organic is, is significantly more difficult. Um, There's, uh, you know, it's not exact, you know, I don't know carrots as well, for example, right? Yeah. But it doesn't seem to me, based on my experience at the store or talking with other farmers, that it's significantly different. Like hops, you you almost guaranteed to lose yield. You have significantly more labor expense. Um, it's it's a real challenge. 
um, mm. to grow hops or, you know, with the big O organic, at least. I mean, yeah, there's a lot yeah. you can do in it to be more mm-hmm. uh, uh, conscious and, respect- and responsible. I mean, there is an interesting thing with hops and at the larger industry level is, you know, in some spaces, it's like, you know, I don't care if it's organic or not. It's just got to be the cheapest potato, right? Yeah. Whatever yeah. it might be to produce. Yeah. And it hops, there's a uh, very interesting research and, and experience with that folks have, you know, drawing lines between some of the more harsh yes. uh, chemicals that can be used in a non-organic system and then influence on the hops quality, which ultimately because hops are a market where it's all about, does someone think the smells or taste good? Uh, yes. It's a lot more subjective than how many pounds of potatoes that I yield per acre. So it's really cool to see how that, characteristic of the hop plant and and you know the end use the end market for hops being so interested in these kind of subjective quality aspects allows farmers more space or creates more incentive for farmers to say hey i'm going to invest in soil health i'm not going to spray super harsh Mm -hmm. chemicals because i see how that impacts you know these softer aspects you know no one cares what a potato well a lot of us do care what potatoes taste like but ultimately it's got to be cheap right? Yeah. That's what, that's what potatoes are for. It's cheap and sit on the shelf. So it's just kind of cool to think about it that way. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's move into, that's something you mentioned right there, which is like subjective profile, but let's move into the marketing side. So when you were growing hops, where were your sales outlets? Yeah, it's, it can be tricky. You know, it depends on the scale of what sort of folks are available to you. When we first started growing, it was, uh, we had like, met some people who had just started breweries and so none of us really knew what we were doing yeah and, you know they purchased some from us and and there were some more experienced brewers who just like believed in the idea of local and wanted to support us yeah. um you know we're forever indebted to them giving us the time and space to learn and and educate us um you could also be selling to home brewers uh i know there's uh one thing that that is really tricky when you're just getting into hops is just how much you have to know and how much you have to learn mm. about them um, yeah. is so overwhelming that for people thinking about it, um, I would really recommend like whatever, what is the smallest amount that you can get away with to learn kind of something about what's the smallest amount of investment that you wouldn't care if you never made a dollar off it. Um, yeah. Because the, the chances of growing sellable quality hops at a scale that pays for them for themselves, you know, that takes a lot of investment and it might take many years mm. to get there to learn and develop. So uh, we were selling to local brewers and to some home brewers, um, but it was, they were all kind of doing us a favor, mm. you know, in the early years. Yeah. And so then as you scaled up, was it more going to just uh, shipping across the nation? Yeah. As we scaled up, it continued to be primarily Minnesota, um, okay. you know, uh, local brewers wanting to support the local hot farm. Um, and that still remained, you know, the bulk of our, of our sales. Okay. Um, and let's talk for someone looking to get in. Where do you think the sweet spot is? Is there a a place for a small grower to get into doing hops? Is it something that should just be super local? It's really tricky. You know, uh, there's so much to discuss and talk about, like, what do you think would be what do you, what are your goals is really where I try to start with people. Like, what do you want from this? Is this yeah. because you want to grow a crop that you think is cool? Is this because you think beer is cool and you want to be related to it? Is it because you want to earn a living yeah. a part of a living or an entire income from hops that really is going to, you know, change your, your investment. And it's a little bit different than saying like, Hey, I want to grow my own potatoes this year. Like go out, get yeah. seed potatoes, plant, you know, look up, you know, put them in hay bale, you know, whatever. With hops, the uh, infrastructure investment 
alone, you know, is is significant. So uh, really knowing what you want out of it. I think it could be tricky, though, if you wanted to do it. I don't think hops work very well as an enterprise, like being part of your farm enterprise, like you also do other things. They're yeah. very demanding at certain times of year. And then they're very demanding as far as the effort that it takes to, you know, sell them or learn about them. You know, I've spent almost 12 years now mm-hmm. in hops, working on hops, learning about hops, and there's still more, you know, it's an immense space. Um, there's always more to learn about hops. Um, but that said too, you know, depending on your farm operation, maybe you have a pick your own uh, thing going already. Maybe you're already familiar with some perennial crops and trellising. Maybe there's a way to find a hop that performs well on a smaller trellis that's maybe very similar to the one grape trellis you have. And you could have a row or two of hops that you can offer PYO for, you know, something like that. There's yeah. ways, I've seen creative ways that people have tried to implement hops into an aspect of their uh, farm enterprise. And, and some have found success. You know, it seems like it's worth the time at least. Yeah. Now the UPICs, I think that sounds um, interesting to me because that's one of the things that we're trying to just keep expanding on our acreage. Um, because they're so tall, do you typically just like slowly lower the vines as people start you picking? I'm just interested if you have any more experience with that. Yeah. When we first started, everything was handpicked. We did we did picking parties, which was a okay. lot of fun. You know, we'd have a brewer bring some beer out. We'd yep. put some fresh hops into the beer and people could drink beer and eat some brats or whatever and, and hand pick our harvest for us. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's fun. I mean, it's fun to be hands-on with hops. So like I said, they smell amazing. People are fascinated by them. But yeah, the way that it, that is all I've seen all these contraptions where people will like rig their their trellis up to so that you can like lower the top line and easily get them. Really, yeah. you should grow them on coir twine, which is the string that everyone uses to grow hops in America. You just cut the string and then bring the string somewhere where people can sit at a table and pick it off. It's gotcha. very simple. You know, you have to put the string up every year, but you're kind of have to do something like that anyway. So just cut it down. The way the strings work is like, you know, the plant grows up it, but they're, you know, disposable. Once a year use, you just cut them at the bottom, cut them at the top. And now you have this mobile yeah. pile of hops that you can go bring to wherever, whether it's a picking machine or a bunch of people. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, cause I know the farm, uh, you guys were hit with a huge weather event. That was kind of the end of your farm. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, here's another reason maybe that you want to think about long and hard before you get into hops commercially. It's very unlikely that your state uh, has uh, a, a crop insurance program that works for your hop That's, farm. Uh, uh, yeah, I had questions about that. <laughs> we are all very familiar with some of the programs that the USDA has, or at least we've heard of yeah. uh, programs the USDA has for you know, uninsurable or non-insurable crop insurance. Um, those do not work very well for perennials or especially hops or growing perennial farms, mm. like farms that are increasing in yeah. perennial acreage. Yeah. Um, there's some challenges with those programs. And so those are not very good options. Um, and then there is nothing on the private market, even if, you know, we, we looked far and wide and we went to, you know, places where it's just like money for money insurance markets and we couldn't get it. Uh, and so ultimately we had a really big storm at the really bad time. And it destroyed a significant portion of both our crop and a larger percentage because of valuable uh, high yielding parts of our field that were destroyed. And that was enough for it to be over. Um, yeah. So that's, you, you know, another yeah. you know, cautionary just, trail for hops. Yeah. You just had too much invested, too much out. There just wasn't the return on investment to try to keep going. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the, the I don't even remember the percentage of revenue loss that we had. Yeah, but it was you know, pretty catastrophic. Yeah. 
So, all right. So that's, yeah, that's again, a cautionary tale, which is good to know. Um, we actually have, I think seven hops planted here on the farm, um, on the South side of our house. And the goal there is that they will just shade the house during the summer. And mm -hmm. again, whatever we use the, if we do end up harvesting some hops off of it, great. If not, I'm just more interested in the vines growing up and being able to talk mm -hmm. about it, how cool it is. But, um, yeah, and I actually forget what variety we have. I was trying to look that up while we were talking, but um, I can't find the email of what I got. But um, yeah, so talk a little bit about what are you do, uh, doing these days? Yeah, well, today I uh, I have a day job where I work with uh, Grown By and Farm Generations Cooperative as our national co-op organizer. We're a farmer-owned online marketplace. Mm -hmm. And with regards to hops, I, I do hop consulting, you know, on the side after the day job was over. Um, so I just, I love the plan. I love the space. I love, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm enamored with it still. Um, and so that's where I work with brewers and farmers and merchants, hop farmers and merchants on whatever I can yeah. help them with. Gotcha. So primarily just like, marketing, primarily sensory planning strategy, um, yeah. product development stuff. Because there just is so much to know about the plant, as you were saying. Yeah. And the plant and the market, you know, I, I am focused more on the you know, marketing or sales or planning aspects and not as mm -hmm. much, you know, I, I'm not an agronomist. Yeah. Uh, you know, I couldn't answer specific questions about which uh, inputs to be using or, or the impact they might have or what to do with X or Y is happening. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. So let's swing, let's swing over a little bit to the business side of what you were, of the, that you were running. What was the, the yearly cycle look like? I mean, I'm assuming like there was a time period that you had to like open the, the fields up and train the plants. And then it was kind of going to just, you know, pause more, just kind of like plants are going to grow. And then it was all harvesting or talk us through like a year on a hop farm. Yeah. So, you know, at a larger farm like ours, the and in Minnesota, you know, spring starts late comparatively. Um, mm -hmm. That was one of the challenges growing in Minnesota. Plants didn't have as much time to get started, but let's say we're starting, we're stringing in late April or May and we're training in May. So stringing is when you put the strings up and then training is when you train the hops up the string. Yep. Uh, and then after everything is strung, which is usually one or two, maybe sometimes three passes um, of stringing by hand. Uh, sorry, training by hand. So everything is on the string. So it's confusing to say stringing and then strung. You know, yeah. There's a lot of fun yeah, words yeah, in yeah. here. Also, hops is just an, an, a crazy word because it, it's the plant, it's the product, it's uh, uh, the different forms yeah. of hops. People say hops and they can mean a yeah. lot of different things. It's also the industry too, the hops It's industry. also the industry. Yep, it's fun. <laughs> it's confusing. Uh, and then uh, uh, once you've got the plants trained onto the string um, or strung, if you will, then it's the maintenance and growing. So that's uh, for us, and even in an organic system, you'd be in there applying fertilizer or nutrients or, or you know, pest or disease management uh, yeah. on a generally weekly basis, sometimes twice a week, depending oh, on wow. what um, your uh, you know analysis is showing for the plant's needs or the stage of growing that you're in. There would also be daily watering, almost all hops to be achieving kind of the Commercial yields need to be irrigated. That's usually a, a drip line yeah. uh, at the base of each plant. Um, and so that system would always need managing and fixing. And then come around uh, early August, you know, the initial cones, or they're technically flowers, but they look like cones. People call them pop cones yep. or leaves even. Um, but they don't look like leaves. Uh, 
that's another word that gets tricky here. They start to develop those flowers. Um, and then we would be starting to analyze the flowers for you know subjective and objective measures of, of, of maturity, uh -huh. which is another thing. No one can really tell you exactly when to harvest your hops, but they, they can become over, over mature. Um, and then we would start harvesting about, I think every year it was August 23rd is when we started harvesting our first variety, which was always Centennial uh, uh -huh. hops, which is an earlier ripening variety. And then harvest would last through to us like mid to late September, never like past that. Um, it's sometimes in Minnesota, it can get too cold and you can from some frost damage. The longer the hops hang, the more damage they can get to because you can't get in there. They'll start disease will start to set in, but yeah. then harvest yeah. happens. Harvest is a wild for us, 20 to 30 day window of mostly 24 hour day. Someone is always there because when you're picking, someone needs to be running the, many people are running the picking machine and bringing plants into the picking machine. At the same time, you need to be drying and managing the drying process and managing the conditioning process and managing the bales, baling process. So once they're dry, wow. they get put into bales and yeah. then those bales yeah. get put into a freezer. And then after all that is done, you start pelleting taking the bales back out of the freezer, running them through the pelleting process and packaging them. Harvest is, is actually absolutely insane on a hop farm. I can um, imagine. Yeah. It's the trade-off of not being maybe as insane during July, you know, yeah. relatively schedulable tractor work yeah. uh, comparatively to 30 days of 24 seven. Yeah. Something is happening at the farm all the time. Um, with significant implications you know if you dry them too much you toast them they're done if you don't dry them enough they'll rot in the bale if you don't x y or z your entire harvest can be completely yeah to heck. yeah so then the machines to take the um leaves or hops off the plants is um it's like you bring it it's in the building so you have to bring the plants to it yep uh there are there are some uh, hot farms out west and the more commercial spaces that have plants and machines developed for harvesting in the field. Mm -hmm. um, they pick in the field and then sort. But for most, what we're talking about here and for like farms, even up to my scale, it's a, it's a stationary combine essentially yeah. that picks yeah. and sorts the flowers from the leaves and the stems and the flowers go one way for further processing and the leaves and the stems get chopped up for compost. Gotcha. And then what size of bales do you typically put them in? Is it like a, a big bale or is it more of a smaller? What's what's that typically? They're, get, they're like a wrapped bale. So they go into a specific hot bale wrap. It's like okay. a white, yep. uh, white or cream colored, you know, plastic sort of deal. And uh, for us, our bales were 200 pounds. Okay. Um regardless of your size, you know, baling is just an important step of making this volume of, you imagine a big pile of dry leaves, dried flowers, uh -huh. Uh -huh. that is a huge volume to try to store anywhere. So baling just compresses that into a way that's maybe stackable or at least more handleable um, uh -huh. for further, for either packaging for sales or further processing. So that's the importance of the baling step. So if you're, a, if you're thinking about a smaller operation or whatever, you know, your bales don't have to be, bales don't have to always be 200 pounds or hundred pounds yeah. or 300 pounds. Yeah. A bale is just a way to improve and not improve, but kind of make it possible to store these things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, drying, what temperature do you have to be for drying? Or is it a variable drying depending on how, where you are in the process? That's a, that's a, that's a, that's one of the points of a lot of debate, a lot of uh, information, a lot of research, a lot of, uh, a lot of opinion. 
hop okay. industry, even at the biggest scale, is not enormous. There's maybe a hundred hop farming families in America or in wow. the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. So it's it's personal uh, and opinionated and uh, <laughs> ego uh, yes. is present. It's it's really fun. Um, so to answer that question, though, <laughs> uh, right now, uh, I would say like 140 degrees Fahrenheit is a, is a fair place to start. You start okay. to get hotter, you start to lose some quality. Some people will say anything above 100 is damaging the quality. I don't know. The most recent research suggests that 140 is just fine. When we were growing, we were trying to be sub 120 because mm -hmm. that's what we thought was the best at the time. That was, you know, three or four years ago now. So yeah. Oh, about 140, but you don't want to be hot. Hot, hot really will toast them. Gotcha. Okay. Very cool. Joining me is Dan from Steward, a mission-driven financial partner for farms across the U.S. Dan, farmers typically look for funding and a financial partner when they decide to scale their business. Why is that? Farms that are scaling, that's a farm that's dialed in their products, their markets. Now they need to grow their production. So they need equipment, they need land, they need labor. They need all the pieces to really scale up production and meet market demand. That's when capital is really needed for farms. Prior to that, farms can use limp funds and tend to get their business going. But once they've established their market, it's about raising funding or having other resources that can help really scale the business. Um, in a lot of circumstances, we've taken farms that you know, had been small operations and really helped them grow to get to where they hope to be. One good example is Fisheye Farms in Detroit. They were farming on a tenth of an acre lot an urban farm, and we helped them fund two acres of land, wash and pack station, equipment, utilities, water. And that whole system system let them grow from about 10,000 revenue to over 150,000 three years later. So where I see the real opportunity in regenerative agriculture are these farms that they've got their production going, the demand is really in place, and how can they get the resources then to take the next step and get the business to the viability that it can be. Yeah, originally it's like they've got the proven model, the proven idea, and they just need that little extra to help grow it. And I think it's important to talk about how the model at Steward works. Give us a little bit of an overview of what the model looks like when you when they go out for funding. So Steward, the difference between Steward is that we fo focus solely on regenerative agriculture funding these types of farms, and the funds are raised through our platform from individuals who are making contributions to the loan that we make to the farmer. So the steward was built for accessibility to broaden who's able to fund agriculture. By changing who can fund it, it changed what types of products can be available to farmers, the types of financing that's out there. So it's about aligning the financing with the needs of the farm. And in particular, for these types of farms that need to grow and scale, you need the right type of funding. You need to give them the time to, to grow the business before having to make payments. And so the, the kind of flexibility around uh, designing for this type of farmer is really what Steward was built for. Mm, absolutely. If you are looking for a non-traditional, mission-driven financial partner who understands the business of regenerative agriculture, reach out to gosteward.com today. Now let's talk the business side of the farm. Uh, how many people did you have working there? Uh, Full-time year-round, there were about three or four of us. Okay. Uh, that, was a, that was me, a farm manager, a sales manager. Uh, and, uh, ahead of the season, we had a farm crew of like tractor operators of two or three. And then during the season, during the peaks of the season, we worked with the H2A program. And so yep. in the spring and fall, we would have 
12 to 15 H2A laborers uh, joined the team. 12 to 15. Okay. And how long were they then on farm for? Uh, in the spring for stringing and training, it was roughly a month. And in the fall for harvest, it was roughly a month. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So that's how you handled that. Because that's the one thing with a hop farm too, is you have these massive variabilities in labor needs. Yep. Yeah. So, we ran the 80 acres with, you know, I mean, functionally two or three people yeah. for most of the growing season. It's just yeah. for two months of the year, you need a lot of hands. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. And I think you did say something there a little bit ago is the most of the hops are grown in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, the average hop farm in America is about 350, 400 acres. Um, over half of those acres are in Washington State in the Yakima Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, the next largest acreage is um, in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And then coming up third, but real close to Oregon is Idaho near Parma, Idaho. And then there's one really big farm way north in Idaho. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, gotcha. primarily Washington, Yakima Valley. And then are, is that the majority of the hops used in the U.S. are coming from these farms? There's also a pretty large in, in, uh, import. Yeah, there's, you know, other, we're all aware that other countries grow hops and we're very familiar with like the Bavarian hop growing region in Germany or some people yeah. are familiar with the Czech growing region of hops. Um, people grow hops in France, people grow hops in, in Britain, people grow hops in China, uh, people grow hops in New Zealand and Australia. Mm. Um, now increasingly South America, uh, hops are being grown. So, um, hops are grown all over the place and, you know, people drink beer all over the place. That's kind of what drives it. Uh, but in America, the majority of hops are being grown here just because that's the style that's being brewed, you know, in a hazy mm. IPA, there's an awful lot of hops and those hops all, almost all are coming from America as opposed to say, you know, a lighter style lager, which might be a, you know, a German lager. We'll have German hops in it, or most likely, but very not very much relative to yeah. you know a big IPA. Yeah. So that's really interesting too. It's like for every hundred gallons of beer, how many pounds of hops do they put in? If that, I mean, it's really, it varies drastically. Yeah, there's data put out every year by the Brewers Association with the average pounds per barrel used in craft beer production. So okay. barrels, the standard unit, yeah, is hovers around two pounds per barrel with okay. with with um craft breweries. So that's one way to try to think about it. If you're trying to scope out like, oh, I think I'm going to grow a thousand pounds a year. So mm -hmm. that'd be about a uh, thousand to about 500 barrels of craft beer. Although yeah. that ranges wildly depends on how the brewer is going to use it. Those big hazy IPAs can be seven or eight pounds per barrel. Gotcha. And yeah. the lighter lagers could be half a pound per barrel. Yeah. So. And a barrel is how many gallons? A barrel is two kegs. So okay. if you can think of what a keg is, I don't know how many gallons of barrels. I'm not a beer drinker, so I don't really know, unfortunately. Um, I like growing things. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's just look that up here. A keg of beer is um, two and a half gallons, maybe? It doesn't make sure. sense. That's not Which enough. Is, yeah. How many gallons in... Um, <laughs> Because it's going to tell you the number of ounces in a keg, right? Okay, no, it's it's the half barrel is fifteen point five gallons, so then a barrel would go. be thirty gallons. Okay, all right, so there we go. That's what we've got the got the details now on that. Interesting, um, and so then, it's a lot of beer. Yeah, right. Because if you think if you're a home brewer or a, a beer drinker, uh, when you brew five gallons of home brew, it takes you a while to get through that. It's like sixty. 50, 50 ish bottles and yeah, uh, yeah, it's a lot of beer. 
Yeah, like a half barrel is 124 pints. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah, when he went to keggers, that's how many pints were in that keg. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, all right. So then, and let's, when you started the business, and we always ask people, like, you know, what would they have done different? Would you have, you know, the obviously you had a, <laughs> it sounds like a fun run at the hops farm, and you, after a while, just you had a storm and it wasn't viable. Would you have changed how you built it? I think you mentioned earlier, maybe you would have done R&D for significantly longer. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that we would do differently. I mean, the first thing, like, but like the overall thing would be to be way less, ask for way more help. Mm. Uh, there were definitely people out there who we could have found for free or for pay that would have helped us avoid some of the significant problems that we made, you know, mm-hmm. of the 80 acres, maybe 40 or 50 were in varieties that we had any business trying to grow, you know, that there was any market for there's any potentials. We have a yield that was financially mm-hmm. viable. Someone could have told us that, yeah. you know, um, someone could have helped us learn how to grow them better more quickly. Cause people grow these hops, like people grow hops commercially in America. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. hundreds mm-hmm. of them, you know, each farm has at least one, they have one, super manager but then there are many other people who know how to grow hops commercially and could have asked any of them yeah uh, to try to avoid some of the challenges of that we went through in the early seasons of managing weeds and managing nutrients and managing water um that's the number one you know challenge uh was uh feeling like we needed to present this idea that we knew it all in order to secure the support the financial support that we got from a business partner um and I think that's something that we would definitely have done differently is, uh-huh. hey, we know X, Y, and Z, but we don't know a whole lot of other stuff. And we're going to go find out before yeah. we yeah. get too yeah. big too fast. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. So have a better, yeah. So because the pro- one of the problems it sounds like is you were spending so much money in R&D, which is that 30, 40 acres of, of stuff you didn't actually harvest anything from that, you know, you weren't able to have enough buffer to try to weather bigger challenges. Not exactly. I would just say that it took us a number of years to get to the point where we were getting to a commercially viable yield on enough of our acreage. And those early years of of not making money, you know, really didn't leave a lot of room for error once we figured out what we're doing for a storm to come. Correct. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 If we could have learned more quickly, gotten to a more successful operation more soon. (laughs) Yeah. You know, sooner. sooner. um, Yeah. Yeah. Maybe things would have been different when that storm came, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that storm pretty much just what knocked everything over because of the high winds. Yeah, it was like I said, it was it was like it was well, I didn't say, but it was a straight line wind event at the wrong time. So I mean you imagine a hop field and your yeah. hop rows of hops are basically these huge sails that you're building. Uh-huh. And a big wind came and started knocking the sails over, and then it was over like dominoes because once the trellis fails, it, it kind of all starts to snap uh and break. And then once they're on the ground, they go poorly, they go bad really fast. It was Sorry, the timing, while the timing was bad as it happened, right, these fields were going to be harvested in the next couple of weeks. So they were at their heaviest. Mm -hmm. They were at their most valuable, almost. Mm -hmm. You know, there wasn't time. Like if it happened early the summer, we might be able to go in and prop up and fix the trellis enough that it could still be harvested normally. Yeah. You know, and the hops, if it was, if it was early spring, there would have been no wait and the wind would have just blown through the trellises. So, uh, you know. Yeah. Bad things happen. Yeah, it was the worst possible. It was the worst possible thing that could have happened at the worst possible time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, Eric, t- t- mention Grownbine a little bit more because you mentioned that when you work with them now. Um, and a lot of what Grownbine does is a it's a pharma co-op for CSA sales software, right? Yeah. Yep. A CSA sales are really any direct to consumer sale that your farm might be doing. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, what do you work with them on? What's your role there? Yeah. So I'm the national co-op organizing lead. Um, I work with farmers to share the news about grown by. We do co-op development education sessions um, and generally, you know, help farmers understand what it is we're offering with our platform, how it can or may not fit their farm well. And if they want to explore that more, helping them, you know, work with the software, learn how it works. Um, you know, ultimately I see my role as kind of a steward or, or a, I guess more of a communicator, you know, I, I, I can, I can access our software engineers and, you mm-hmm. know, the real tech people who can add features or, or solve challenges that farms are having. Um, but also out there talking to farms of what their needs are and how it's working for them or not, or what they need um, from a platform or really, I really like one part of my job I really like is just helping farmers think through, you know, what is the right software platform for you? I mean, I think that's, if I have any advice, like it's, do your research and take your time and mm. talk to people, talk to the different, there's a lot of software platforms out there for farms and there's probably going to continue yeah. to be more. There's a lot of interest in bringing ag, uh, tech to ag. Um, and for us smaller farms and direct to consumer farms, it can be really tricky that I don't really think anyone's really figured out exactly how to do that um, and, and reach this niche that's you know so much smaller. There's examples of ag, of tech going to ag and supporting you know corn production or whatever. That's a huge industry with a lot of money and a lot of margin. Uh, to be to be you know harvested if you will, but I think it's very different for direct to farmer software sales. And so if a farmer I think is looking at that, I really recommend y'all like do your research, talk to the people behind you know the products that you're looking for, take your time in making the right decision because it's it's, it's none of them are going to fit you perfectly unless yeah you know the stars have aligned. Every software has its own decisions built into it that can't be changed. And also once you choose one it's a lot of work to to stop using one and go to another one, even if there's no cost, like direct costs associated with that. Correct. Yeah. You know, moving your customers is is a lot. Yeah, um, Having profiles. them get used to a yeah. different website uh, where they go to log in can be a lot for some of your customers. You know, some people are very uncomfortable putting their credit card on the internet still, you mm-hmm. know, and that's that's mm-hmm. okay. So so there's a lot to consider. And I, and I you know, my, my biggest fear or worry is, 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 or you know, it makes me sad when I see a farm that like they sign up for a thing, they committed to a thing, and now it's just not right. You know that they're not being supported how they need, or it turns out like it didn't really have the features that they hoped or or or, or thought or were told it had. Um, yeah, and that's a tricky spot for you to be with your you know with a marketing platform for your business. So, um, yeah. yeah, I just I, I'm always happy to talk to someone about growing by and, and what our software and our service is like. And if it's not right for you, I'm not going to bother you or be sad. You know, yeah. Just, yeah. The other thing you can look at is the level of support that comes with the software, because like, if you don't have like people need to order their product, but if you don't have a support for 48 hours, I mean, that's a lot of time that goes by in a week. So that's something we've run into with some of the software and currently is just trying to get support and it's been very challenging. Yeah, We're excited. So. We're, we're adding another full-time support person um, soon. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. 
Well, Eric, I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for sharing about your background. And I, I know it's never always the easiest thing to talk about, like, you know, like I guess you wouldn't call it a failed business, but a business that had to be shut down. Um, and, uh, but I think, you know, what we were able to cover today was just like, here's what the industry looks like. Here's the opportunities. Here's may you may want to, or may not want to get involved. And uh, it's one of those things that sounds like either you're going to be very small and do something alternative with it. Like you mentioned the UPIC or it's, you're going to be very big and you're going to have a tremendous amount of effort behind you. But it sounds like too, that a lot of these established hop farms are multi-generational and have been doing it for a very long time. And that's how they make it work. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real tricky space. There's not a lot of room in the middle for hops. Um, and you know, I'm happy to talk about my hop experience. It was incredibly difficult losing the farm, you know, yeah. cause it wasn't just a bit, it wasn't just a business. I mean, farms are, it was a farm business yeah. and farms are another level of personal Mm -hmm. uh, to, to a lot of businesses in my experience. And that was an incredibly difficult time and a long journey out of, you know, the fog and the depression and the sadness yeah. and the, you know, yeah. the, 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 the grief of losing that. But, um, I also know now that, you know, bad things can happen. Good things happen from them. Um, mm -hmm. it's going to be okay. Like it, I'm happier now than I was during yeah. that time. And, you know, it's just, it, it was an incredibly valuable life experience and part of my you know a huge part of who i am as a farmer and um you know the person i am so you know it, it was really hard but everyone out there who's farmed for long enough you have stories of losing a crop to something you can't control and, and i think it's a nice it's a nice reminder that we don't control everything and that sometimes things happen and mm -hmm. we need to just deal with how we you know handle how we deal with it mm -hmm. absolutely well thank you again eric can't wait to share this with the audience Hey, Thriving Farmers listeners, are you putting a ton of time and money into making your Shopify or Wix work for your farm's needs? These website builders work great when you're selling t-shirts, but for a spring plant sale or CSA share over a season, it's a lot of work and can get pretty expensive. That's why farmers like me decided to come together and build GrownBuy, a cooperatively owned farm sales platform that fits our business model, reduces our costs, and saves us time. I'm Lindsay lesher shoot co-founder of GrownBuy and Farmer. This year, we use GrownBuy at my farm to sell CSA shares, cheese and egg shares, turkeys at Thanksgiving, fall lamb, seasonal pies, and quite a bit more. We even accepted donations for our subsidized community shares. GrownBuy is our complete farm store. It processes payments, beautifully handles proration, installment payments, manages custom orders, and add-on shares. GrownBuy generates pick lists, sign-in sheets, backing sheets, and handles order notifications for our customers. Listeners to the Thriving Farmers podcast get 50% off their first three months on GrownBuy. Just email us at grow, G-R-O-W, at farmgenerations.coop to get this offer, and Michael will link to us in today's show notes. You can find us at grownby.com or on the Google Play or Apple App Stores under GrownBuy, G-R-O-W-N-B-Y. I look forward to seeing your farm on Grown By this season. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.